Welcome to episode 87. Today, we'll be in Matthew chapter 1, and there's no reason to get too excited. It's just another boring genealogy. I've always thought that most of Scripture was inspired. I mean, let's be honest. Those long lists of names in the genealogies, somebody must have snuck those in after the final edits. And if that's what you've always thought, get ready, because today's episode is going to flip your script. Well, welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. I am Greg Hall, and today's episode is part one of two. We are going to go where no human has gone before. We will not only visit, but we're going to hunker down inside the most unread portion of the New Testament, which is really weird because it's the first 17 verses of the New Testament. Not since Genesis 5, or maybe parts of Leviticus, have so many verses in the Bible been almost wholly avoided. So, in real time, we're at the end of January 2024, which means that just a little over a month ago, everybody across the planet was reading the story of Jesus' birth in the first chapter of Matthew. And my guess is that in all the church services across the world, no one read completely through the first 17 verses. I mean, in their entirety. And that's probably because no one thinks they are a part of the birth story. But nothing could be further from the truth. And let me just boldly say that by the end of today's episode, you will likely choose to include the genealogies next Christmas. So let's just dive in. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and start reading right there. And let me just warn you, we're not going to get very far today. <laughs> but between this episode and the next one, we're going to tackle this genealogy in a way that you've probably never even considered before. And I'll even say this, we're going to tackle it on multiple fronts in ways that you've never even considered before. These 17 verses are maybe my favorite 17 verses in the whole of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 reads in the NASB, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's one of the first words with which Matthew chose to begin his gospel that might sound kind of familiar. And in Greek, it's pronounced genesis. It's a word that we've brought into the English language as genesis. But we don't have that Greek word translated here as the English word genesis. It's been translated as genealogy. And that kind of makes sense. Our idea of the word genesis talks about its beginnings. And that's part of what a genealogy is. It discusses the beginnings of a family line. So what I just read in the English, the record of the genealogy, the way this starts, it's literally the book 
of the genesis of Jesus, the Christ. And if we knew our Greek better, we would recognize the phrasing that Matthew is choosing to use. Because Matthew took his phrasing from the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And he's pulling it out of Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, where there is also a genealogical list. And there is described as the book of the Genesis of humanity. So, even though Matthew only records back to Abraham in his gospel, he's gesturing all the way back to Adam in the way he presents it. Those familiar with the Greek Septuagint, they would have recognized that immediately. And our translations have also hidden from us one of the most compelling reasons we should consider the genealogy as connected to the rest of the birth story that begins in verse 18. And that's because the author repeats the same phrasing directly after the genealogy is over. That's how he begins the birth story. So, for instance, in Matthew 1.1, he says the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. In verse 18, he begins the birth story with this phrase, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. The word that's been translated as birth is the same Genesis word that was used at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. Now, it's translated into the English as genealogy in verse 1, and here in verse 18, that Greek word has been translated as birth. Both of those ideas, genealogy and birth, bring out aspects of the genesis of something. So, our translators are trying to help us understand the intent of the author, but because it's a translation and because we've changed them to different words, we're missing the connection that the author intended for us to have. The genealogy is directly connected to the birth. We could translate both of these as the genesis of Jesus the anointed. And like I said, our well-meaning English translations, they have tried to help us understand the intended meaning, but in that process, we have missed that Matthew is telling us to read the genealogy, the first 17 verses, along with the birth story, which begins in verse 18. The genesis of Jesus doesn't begin with his birth. His birth story is part of a larger story that takes us all the way back to the genesis of humanity. He's telling us that this one, this little baby Jesus, has been anointed to continue the story that started way back in the beginning. (laughs) We're not even done with the first verse yet. There's more. We're going to focus in just a little bit on the name Jesus. Verse 1 starts, the record of the genealogy of Jesus. So the Greek name that we translate as Jesus is Iesus. It's the Greek name for Joshua, but it's been translated as Jesus for various reasons that we're not going to get into. 
But given the Old Testament ties that Matthew is making here in these first verses of his gospel, I think it's also important to point out that Mary and Joseph were given the name Joshua for their child. It was a name pregnant with meaning. And the pun is intended there. It was pregnant in meaning in their culture. Joshua is an Old Testament character who was also anointed by God. And you'll remember, he's the one who followed in Moses' footsteps and brought the Israelites across the Jordan River and into the land of Israel. So Matthew presents this new Joshua, Yehoshua in the Hebrew, Jesus in the Greek, as Christos. And that is the Greek way to say the Messiah, which is the Hebrew way to say someone who is anointed. And Matthew points out that this new Joshua is the son of David and Abraham. And he's the fulfillment of the promises and covenants made to both of those people. It's through him, the new Joshua, that all the world will be blessed. And he will be the one to fill the throne of David for eternity. So we've only taken a look at the first verse, and we can already see that the setting of the Jesus story is much bigger than we may have thought. And it's Matthew, the author, who is helping us imagine the ties that this little baby boy has with not just King David and Abraham, but in the way he says it all the way back to the beginning and Adam. And by focusing on those three, David, Abraham, and gesturing to Adam, all the other characters who had been anointed by God in the Old Testament are to be considered as well. Jesus is royalty, and that's one of the main points of the intro. But then the genealogical account takes a turn that you necessarily wouldn't expect. I've talked about my wife before, Lisa. She is a counselor, and I remember when she was taking classes to get her degree. We would often talk about the things that she was learning, and I remember one of the assignments that she had was a type of a family tree. And it was a brand new term to me, but she called it a genogram. And for those of you that can picture maybe a family tree, a list of names of descendants, a genogram is like a family tree 3.0. Not only does it reveal who's in the family, but it is also rich in information that exceeds that. Like what are the major events of this family? Are there any cultural factors that should be considered as we look at these relationships? Were there any mental health issues, medical conditions? What kind of traumas did the people in the family in our ancestry go through that might contribute to who this person is at the bottom of the family tree? Were there any addictions? And for each of these people, what role did they play in the family dynamic? So, Genograms, way different than family trees, but they can help someone learn more than just what a family tree can provide. And you're learning about yourself when you look at your genogram. 
Because by focusing on the intricacies of your family's origin, you're going to find out a little bit more about who you are. And that's what they mean when therapists say that we're going to look into your family of origin. They're asking the question, what is it that you've inherited besides your name from the humans that helped make you? And it's when we know more about our past that helps us to know more about ourselves. And let me tell you, my wife's genogram was incredibly interesting to me. I mean, I'm looking at this thing, and when she explains it to me, I'm making connections like you wouldn't believe. Oh, that's why you respond to me the way you do when I fold the towels the wrong way. <laughs> Things started clicking all over the place. And I felt like I understood Lisa better with all of this new information. But then, a little later, my counselor gave me a similar assignment. And that's when I understood its value on a whole different level. Because it really helped me understand more about myself. And this should be obvious, but let me just say it anyway. When we better understand our origins, we better understand ourselves. And the hope is that with that knowledge, we're able to make better decisions in the future. So with that setup, let me just suggest to you that Matthew isn't presenting a genealogy here in the first 18 verses of his gospel. If you only see a list of names in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, you are missing what Matthew is trying to communicate. And the problem is, that's how everyone views it. And that's why everyone skips right past it to get to the birth story. Matthew isn't giving us a genealogy. Matthew is giving us Jesus's genogram. And he's hoping that by understanding Jesus's family of origin, we will not only understand him better, but we'll also begin to understand ourselves better. And why do I think this is a genogram instead of a genealogy? It's because Matthew's included the names of five women in his assignment. And in a royal genealogy, this is something that would never be done. Because the name and the right to be called king is passed down through the men in Jesus' line. His royal heritage is established only by the names of the men. But Matthew includes the names of five women. So we're looking at the book of the Genesis of Jesus the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. And Matthew begins with telling us quickly in verse 2 that Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. And this is usually when people skip <laughs> down to verse 18. But it's in verse 3 that we get the first mention of a woman. And remember, the reason the names of the women are in there is for us to get to know Jesus' genogram a little better. 
Matthew is assuming that we understand the stories behind all of these Old Testament characters. Let's just take a look at the first one for now. In Matthew 1.3, the author names a woman by the name of Tamar. And like I said, with that name, Matthew expects you to fill in all of the sociocultural genogram details of the family. He expects you to understand the major events of Tamar's story, the cultural factors at play in Tamar's story, what traumas she might have experienced, what relationship dynamics there were between her and her husband's family, and maybe most importantly, the role that she played in her family. Now, some of you may not be familiar with the Old Testament story of Tamar. It's found back in Genesis 38. But let me just say this. <laughs> the story of Tamar is not a story of which the family would be particularly proud. Matthew establishes the line from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob and then to Judah. And then he says that Judah fathered twin boys by Tamar. And like I said, he's gesturing back to the complexities of the story in Genesis chapter 38. And it's there where we find out that Tamar originally marries into Judah's family, not by marrying Judah, but by marrying Judah's eldest son, Ur. And we don't have a whole lot of information about Ur other than he was evil in the sight of the Lord and that he was killed by God. So, to begin... Tamar marries into the family, and her husband is somehow eliminated by God. Now, here's some more complexities that come in, and it's by way of a Leverite union, uh, and this is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, if you want to go back and do some more research. It's by way of these family relationship that Judah asks his second son, Onan, to provide offspring for Tamar so that the family line might continue. In our culture, <laughs> this is weird, but in their culture, this is what was honorable and was expected. Now, the problem is, it wasn't Ur, the first husband, that had all the problems. Onan has his own issues. He uses Tamar not like a wife, but like a harlot. The text is clear that he has no intention of conceiving a child with her. And for his troubles, God eliminates Onan as well. So let's just think about this family structure right now. Tamar is brought into the family. By no reason of her own, she's lost two husbands to death. And the law in Deuteronomy would suggest that the third brother in the family should also be given to Tamar to continue the family line. So as we just begin to fill out this genogram for Jesus, how are the family dynamics looking so far? <laughs> oh boy, what a mess. It turns out the third son in the family, the brother of Ur and Onan, is a little too young to marry when Onan dies. So Tamar waits for this third child of Judah to mature. But when it comes time, she is deprived of even that right. And let me say this clearly, Tamar has the right to continue the seed of the family. Not only the seed of the family, but the way it's being presented here in Matthew's presentation, 
This is the seed of the promise. So she has the right to continue that line, but the family's not cooperating. Her first husband was supposed to produce an heir for Judah, but he was wicked. Judah's second son was wicked. And we discover that Judah was also a wicked man when he withholds his third son from her. But let's remember, producing an heir was one of the few rights that women were granted. In that culture, it was one of the major roles they had within their family. And Tamar figures that the only way to produce a promised seed for this family is to dress like a harlot. Yes, she dressed up like a prostitute, and in so doing, she concealed her identity. She then seduced and slept with her widowed father-in-law, Judah. She has enough faith to think that God will still use this family to continue the line of Abraham. Now, I agree. Most of us, (laughs) we're going to cringe at several points in this story. But we need to understand that most of those cringeworthy parts of the story are coming from our cultural norms. From her culture's perspective, and maybe more importantly, from God's perspective, Tamar was a noble woman. She became an important part of the genogram of the new Joshua. And it's interesting right there in verse 3, both of Tamar's twins, Perez and Zerah, are named in Matthew's list, even though the family line continued through only the secondborn. And honestly, all of this causes me to ask the question, why? (laughs) Why, Matthew, would you include this story, one of a woman who dressed up like a whore in order to continue the line of the promised seed? And the answer becomes obvious. If this were simply a genealogy, you would not include this story. But this is an important part of Jesus's genogram. Tamar went to extraordinary lengths and was surrounded by sexual scandal. And yet, she was an important woman of faith in the line of Jesus. And Matthew knows that by knowing Jesus' family of origin better, we can begin to understand him better. Well, (laughs) that's all I got for today. But that's not even the most interesting stuff in Jesus's genogram. There are four other women mentioned in the opening verses of Matthew. And if Tamar's story was uncomfortably awkward for you, then just prepare yourself for more of the same in the next episode, which will be part two of a royal genogram. Before we sign off, I just want to mention, be sure to head on over to RethinkingScripture.com where we've got a full companion study for the book of Matthew. It works great for individuals, but it was designed to work well for small groups. And maybe you know somebody that has skipped over the genealogy in Matthew before. (laughs) Would you consider letting them know that they've got to hear the latest episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast? (laughs) 